Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. This week, I'm combining two of my worlds and speaking with Jill Kirk. Despite a humble Glaswegian working class background, Jill has walked the halls of Oxford and Parliament. She's set up her own business, written for corporations, stage, and screen, and has been a kick-ass single mom, a perfect The Second Chapter guest indeed. She's also the playwright behind Skin in the Game, the dark, hilarious climate change play I'm currently producing at the new Wimbledon Studio Theatre in November. There is a moment where I realised with some relief that it didn't matter that I wasn't famous or earning six figures or whatever else, size four, that I was living my values. And that was really nice. I wasn't chasing a carrot. Hi, Jill. It's so nice to hear and see you. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you, birthday girl? Oh, yes, it's my birthday. <laughs> I feel like this is a gift to be able to chat with you on my birthday. Oh my God. So I'm very well. Thank you. I can't, honestly, you keep saying that and I'm thinking she's really polite, but she's American. She's really polite. <laughs> I don't understand this whole American thing because we can be as passive aggressive as everyone in the UK. But I do feel like my enthusiasm is genuine. I'm oh. not one to be, uh, I don't know, if I didn't want to do it, I probably would just be like, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> I'm honestly genuinely thrilled and very flattered. And let's make it a really good one. Definitely. Which, but the bar is high. The bar is high. I've talked to some really amazing women, so I feel really lucky. But I think you can meet the bar and let's, who knows, gold medal high jump. It's honestly, genuinely brilliant company. Uh, Really cracking. I said in the intro that we're combining my two worlds today as producer of Slackline Productions and that I'm producing a play that you've written, which I'm thrilled about. Skin in the game, by the way. But you've had some really interesting career, life, etc. paths. One of my new things I've asked some people for is chapter titles in their lives. Yes. I'm intrigued when I ask a writer because the ones I get, and especially (laughs) if I ask them in advance, because of course I don't get back, like mine would be like, I grew up in Cincinnati. No. So I'm going to read yours. Even though I've been (laughs) talking for the last 10 minutes, I'm going to read yours and then we can go into it. The Glasgow years, exile, Marxist goth goes to Oxford, (laughs) SW1, and then the more recognizable 30 plus. So we're going to call that your act two as a playwright. Self-employment, leaving London, the dream of the writer, grown-ups and children, and scrambling to the light. Yeah, let's start. I don't know. I want to start with Marxist goth goes to Oxford personally. Oh, I was talking to somebody about this last night, funnily enough. And it's that I think one of the things about getting older is how, and, and thinking about those chapters was really interesting because when I got to the point where I said and the more recognizable bit I went wow it's almost like before then was another person who now I'm 48 nearly 49 it's that thing of going wow look at that young person that young woman that I was she was really interesting but there's just a thread that goes through the the Marxist goth goes to Oxford (laughs) <laughs> so nobody in my family that I knew had ever gone to university. There's some sort of distant second cousin stroke uncle who did, who was the very first person. And I didn't really know what university was. And we moved from Glasgow to England when I was eight. And I repeated work for years, just different education systems. But it meant that I got this thing, this label as clever 
And we'll never know whether it was true or whether it became a self-fulfilling prophecy because you get on this track in schools in the state system or any system and uh, universities talked about and then English was my thing and so the obvious place to try for really at the time in the in the 80s and 90s was to go to Oxford and I got in but it was that thing of this isn't university isn't for the likes of us and certainly not that um, and also in the 80s in Britain we'd all just had Brideshead revisited on sort of endless so all the cliches, all the stereotypes were huge. And there was me going, well, okay, I can do this. And having to come at it almost from positioning myself as an outsider in order to create a role for myself that would work. So it's almost like, you, you know, that thing of you can't be what you can't see. Yes. Well, if absolutely. you can create a fish out of water narrative, then you can go, well, I can be that. So I said, obviously, I'm not an old Etonian with floppy blonde hair. <laughs> so you know what I'm gonna have to be is something else so I'm five foot two I'm Glaswegian working class background a right old lefty and so it was almost it really was very much me but I think there was I think there is often safety in personas yes and it was a, it really was only yesterday I went oh that's interesting so at eight I was very much an outsider down here in England because for so many reasons, we'd gone from the biggest school in our part of Glasgow to a small country school of 200 people where they had no school uniform. And everybody talked, I wouldn't try and do the accent because it might offend, but everybody <laughs> spoke in a very London overspill, Essex, Hertfordshire sort of accent, which was not my Glasgow accent, so it stood out like a sore thumb. So when you're othered, making yourself even more other and owning it, we see it in communities all over the place, don't we? It was a place of safety. So Mark, <laughs> Marxist lefty, goth veggie from a comp goes to Oxford, was like, come on! It is funny because of the timing too. It, it makes me think of something like The Breakfast Club or something where everybody did have a title. The film has like a goth, I can't even remember, a weirdo, they, a, a nerd, whatever. And not that it's not anymore, but it was such a time where it was like, if you could find your tribe, yeah. it was okay to have that label. Whereas I always felt like I was somewhere weirdly floating around in the, I don't want to say in the middle, God, but I definitely, why didn't I grab my tribe? I had the chance. <laughs> but, it, but there's a re there is something really interesting there about the middle and it's like you know most people describe themselves as better than the average driver i'm not <laughs> right it can't work well you're one of the few honest ones because how I'm can we be driver and i will own it <laughs> <laughs> so do you feel like uh, owning the marxist goth goes to oxford label served you well when you got to oxford there's a lot going on there which is i had uh, really supportive parents who said that there's going to be no money. There's only education. So take everything you can get. I'm an older sibling. I believe <laughs> in this birth order stuff. My teachers and my mum and dad made real effort to, to get us into good schools. So I went to a comprehensive, but it was outside my catchment area. So there's that whole thing about which local authority you're in and all the rest of it, which is gone now. But that was a big thing then. And the school I was at was led by a brilliant guy who I've just seen as donated to the crowdfunder. So Roger, if you're listening, thank you very much. Thank you, Roger. And I've only just seen that, but that's amazing. That 
that man changed my life. That's he's why we're here. Basically, it was a brilliant head teacher who had a brilliant team around him in every subject, and their support was was absolutely life changing. It really, I'm feeling a little bit emotional now. It really, really was. And it wouldn't have mattered if I hadn't gone into Oxford. I didn't expect to. I had no sense of entitlement, and I had you know plenty of other fantastic choices of places where I wanted to go and would have had an event, you know, it was that sense of there's going to be an adventure. How amazing to be thinking, which one is it going to be? And it turned out to be that one. And it was, you know, I loved it. I was lucky. I was at a small college, which is now 95% state school intake. It's called Mansfield. It's wonderful. It was tiny. It was really friendly. And everybody in it was very outward looking. So everybody was involved in things all over the university. And there was no sense of barriers. And it was an incredible leveller. That's the thing. You work alongside and learn alongside and play alongside people from all over the world because you've all passed through a certain experience to get in. There are all sorts of, there's lots and lots of politics around what goes on before then, which isn't for this. But I'm now not, I'm not scared of anyone. I wish I could say the same. I'm scared of everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I'm scared of everything. No, that's not quite accurate. I do think English is a, a bold choice. And the reason I say that, I feel like not coming from money, it feels very much what do you do with it when you're finished kind of thing. What was your intention? Oh my God, to be a famous TV presenter or something. But that's a really interesting point because I think in the 1980s and early 1990s, we just lost living grants Mm -hmm. for university students. We didn't pay for the tuition yet in this country. Subjects like English were still incredibly popular and that we know that's changed now. When I left, I genuinely did think I would be in broadcasting. I had that intention for a long time. That was definitely something that was on my very short list of what I planned to do. Here we are. (laughs) It's come around, to be honest. It is weird because actually I use my degree every day. So the mix of my degree was, I didn't really do that much literature. I did history of the language, sociology of the language, sociolinguistics, weird things like I did Anglo-Saxon and Old Icelandic. So I read sagas in the original. It's all storytelling. It's all storytelling or persuasive language. So when I'm not, here comes the segue, when I'm not writing plays and music and doing stories and story structure, I'm, I work in corporate communications and I've been a lobbyist and a campaigner. It's all communications. How do we communicate? What are we not just saying, just like in writing a script, it's not just about the dialogue. It's what's going on between people. And that an English degree is, you don't, it shouldn't be rebranded communications, but it certainly isn't, you know, Shakespeare and Dryden, or it wasn't for me. Right. Yeah. I guess that's what I think of, because when I started, it was for my degree, I started in communications and history with the idea that I would ultimately loop around and go into broadcast journalism, but go through it a slightly different way. That didn't last very long because it wasn't like what you're describing at all in my school in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh. But it's not about me. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but, but there's a really interesting thing there, isn't it, about what if the broader what you do in tertiary education is almost the better because it's the skills that are underneath almost that matter. What is it that we're going to need in our careers? And this podcast is, is a great example of, if you look at what the common thread is, we're talking about resilience, adaptability, a growth mentality, 
right? It's all those things. Yeah, it's true. It just didn't last very long for me because I was in fashion design before you knew it, which is a whole other story. But your next chapter is SW1. The Marxist goth goes to SW1. (laughs) SW1, which surely they've got to turn it into a BBC sitcom. So SW1, for those who don't know, is the postcode of Westminster and Whitehall, the, the seat of government in London. I became, so I did a year at the Students' Union, which was an elected post, and I was vice president, brackets, women. Those of us who were there at the time can only ever describe that job like that. The brackets are very important. Yes. <laughs> and like professional politics, and it was great. You're doing all that stuff. And then it's almost a curse because you've been a sabbatical officer at Oxford University Students' Union. You've been in the national media for all sorts of usually unpleasant things when you've got women in your job title. And, and then you go and try and get a job. And you're not important anymore. It's really interesting. If you don't want to do, I didn't want to do the milk round. So you get courted by all. So the milk round is the recruitment round. Where I was going to say, what is that? I have no yeah. idea. Yeah. So basically, they, particularly if you're then, and I imagine it's still the case now, if you're a young woman who's done all those sort of jobs and fancy pants things at, at a university, you'll get taken out to dinner, you'll get taken to receptions, you'll get all these businesses basically showcasing themselves in front of you, going, here is the package for joining. Come and be a tax accountant or whatever, which I didn't want to do. And I didn't, uh, then I didn't have family in London, so I couldn't afford to go and work in Parliament or the media for free. That just wasn't an option. I had to earn money. And I was applying for jobs and applying for jobs and getting nowhere. And it, it really got quite scary. And then... And this shows how old I am. I saw an advert in the newspaper. <laughs> I remember those. Right? <laughs> and I, I had joked, I'll see something in The Guardian that says, do you understand student unions? Are you political? And there was, honestly, there was that job advert. It was really weird. Tick. Tick, tick. So that's how I got into, it was a little, what we call a little lobbying shop. So proper parliamentary lobbying run by two ex-MPs, one uh, Conservative and one Labour, with a sort of handful of clients. And my job was to get from, I was living in Oxfordshire at the time, so get into London for half past eight when the Parliamentary Bookshop opened and pick up Hansard, which is the record of yesterday's What Happened in Parliament. And it was printed as a book. And then the order papers for both the, the Commons and the Lords for today and then read them all, highlight what people had said about various clients, photocopy it, cut it out, stick it onto a piece of paper with print stick, including a little header about the company name and the client, and then fax it off to the client, going, this is what happened in yesterday, yesterday in Parliament that is relevant to you, and here's what's coming up today. So not a job that would happen today. No, but... it would, it's totally automated. I feel like I am an antique. No. It was, but it was brilliant because you were reading you were reading everything, every debate and every early day motion, everything that was happening in both houses. You knew every constituency and every MP's name because you could not. It was, yeah, it was weird and fun and a great job to do when you're in your 20s and you're just, this is it. You're having, you're ha- again, you're having that adventure. It was brilliant. I feel like if we go from your chapters, we go into the next sort of more recognisable act two, if you will. But what's the segue? Where, what took you away from that? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. I went from, so we had the 1997 general election where Labour won, and I had worked in Millbank on the Labour Party team, being their film unit gopher, running around delivering VHS cassettes of party election broadcasts around the country. 
so the shadow cabinet could sign them off. It was just great. And, and then the industry changed with a Labour government because lots of people had the culture of lobbying changed, the culture of communications changed, the internet was getting bigger and more widely used. So all sorts of things started to shift. And so I moved to another agency and it was wider communications. So rather than we've got a problem, we don't like this regulation on this, let's go and lobby someone to change it. That became a really blunt way of actually engaging with society as a whole. And I got much more interested in how do we move a conversation? How do we, particularly if you're working with uh, an organisation that just needs, say, let's say a charity, needs to be better understood. It's not then just about changing a law. It's about building relationships and having a part in the general conversation. And so how do you equip organisations? And I did a lot of charities work, which was great, to really be heard, particularly, for example, where they might be battling against pharmaceutical companies with a lot, lots of money on one side and they're the patients on the other you know, or disability organisations and that kind of thing. I am the woman who got VAT off the shelf price of incontinence pads. This is your claim to fame. My gravestone bit. But it's hugely important because basically it was all just NHS. People couldn't really buy them in the shops. And then the manufacturers started saying, people aren't getting enough through the NHS. We are going to create a retail market because enough people need them, but the NHS isn't providing them. We would have press releases that said, and this isn't me that came up with this one, this is a predecessor of mine on that campaign, said press releases entitled things like incontinent people can't wait. <laughs> it's brilliant because we all we ourselves sometimes, right? But nothing to be ashamed of. Not at all. Again, we will talk about skin in the game later, but I think it does lead the question, how much can you laugh about something very serious or how, you know, does humor actually make things a little bit easier to swallow so it gets the point across better? Yeah, but no, but it's completely true. I, I got a job years later. So another thing I worked on was poison poo. And there is a disgusting, horrible, really nasty um, hospital acquired infection called C. difficile, which just basically destroys your, it makes you sick and it makes you poo. But the germs are in that waste. And I worked with a company that came up with basically a bag it and bin it system. I won't say much more, but you can imagine. Yes. So you just don't have a ward with this stuff floating through the air. Thanks to the system, it's contained. And I uh, couldn't get the Daily Mail to cover this. The Daily Mail every day was talking about this terrible thing. And we're going, There's, excuse me, excuse me. But you know they don't want to talk about it. And so I talked about the campaign in a job interview for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And uh, they went, if you can talk about poison poo with humour, <laughs> <laughs> you can probably talk about anything. So I think it's now you're making me realise it is a common theme in my life is to talk about the really awful stuff because we all have it. Yeah, it's true. I feel like there are so many things that we find embarrassing, but like you said, we all have it. I mean, some much more serious than others, but I think that's one of the things I'm always trying to talk about on this podcast as well is all the things that were a little bit, oh, this makes me sad, but I don't talk about it. Or we all go through this as women, but we don't talk about it. Here's a challenge to to the listeners, but because you've got such a great community, right? We don't have a language for all those period related moments like when the string gets stuck between your thighs while you're walking. Do we need a verb? Do we need a noun? But it's a thing that happens, not to everybody, because not everybody uses tampons, but, you know, that yeah, things like that, that we actually, there's, it's called a semantic gap. Is, is that gap. the name of the string thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The semantic right? gap. The semantic gap. <laughs> I'm having a semantic gap moment. 
This made me think of a podcast and someone that I, that we correspond a lot on Instagram, but she talks about menopause and I think perimenopause, maybe more than menopause at this point, but called my bloody hell. Oh, and I just yeah. think as everyone here says, bloody hell this, bloody hell that, and my bloody hell is such a good name for it. It's just, it's literal, it's funny and spot on, spot on. There you go. Oh dear. I feel like we need to shift and we're going to go down some road that is just one right, step con- too far. <laughs> control out delete. You were saying. <laughs> yes. I'm going back to your chapters now. <gasps> Self-employment, leaving London, all of these things. How do we segue? Oh my word. I ran for parliament and and then basically straight away I got divorced and within a year or so set up a business. We can safely infer that you did not get elected to parliament. No, I didn't. I'm just saying because you didn't say that, not because I don't think it's possible. No, no, no. But you didn't say, and then my subsequent time in Parliament. No, it's really, in, I, I mean, I, 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 so yeah, I ran for Parliament and I loved doing it. It was a real honour meeting, uh, working with the community and having the time to do it and feeling that I was carrying a, I'm going to sound like such an idiot, but I was, this is 20 years ago, but I really felt honoured and I still do to do that and it meant the world to me and obviously didn't win and I think that probably and I went back to work and it shook up quite a lot of stuff I -hmm. think and I can only really say that looking back now then it just seemed like no this has got to happen and no this has got to happen and yes my my husband who was my first husband got a big uh, job opportunity overseas at the same time and I realised I wouldn't want to go because it, I wouldn't have been able to work because of what well, I would have been the wife. Yes. Uh, and I wouldn't, and lobbying particularly wouldn't have been a possibility. I think if that hadn't happened, I would have chunted along quite nicely. Mm-hmm. And it's when it's almost as if you're walking along and then there's a mirror in the path and you're going, oh, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to. Oh, what am I going to do with this? And it, I think that was the real kind of the shift had already begun, but I hadn't been aware of it. Right. And then it really was that thing of this road is now at an end. And I think really there's a grieving that goes on there. And I think this is, again, one of those things that we all experience. We set up things in our lives, jobs or relationships or uh, careers, sorry, a job and a career. They're not always the same thing. But True. And we assume they'll go on forever because I want it now. So it's like that. there's a really good song forever for now. And it's that kind of thing. Your every intention is there. Every good intention is there. But forever, you can't predict what you will be like in the future. And recognizing your two selves almost meet. So there's me who created this. And then there's me who's actually alive now. And they're different people. So am I, am I letting the 17-year-old me drive the car? Right. I don't think that's a great idea, to be honest, but have I got the bravery to to say, hang on, 17-year-old, 22-year-old Jill, uh, I'm going to have to you know, start steering now. And, and so that's the thing. So I didn't even, going back to politics in that kind of frontline sense, just wasn't something I wanted to go back. I didn't go, right, I'm going to run next time. I'm going to get divorced. And now I'm going to run for parliament again. It just completely went off the agenda. And I went and did some other jobs, one in a charity and then at Heathrow Airport where I was third runway woman and retired Concord and stuff like that. Yeah, it was great. But then I was starting to hit my early 30s. And then I just went, actually, I want to work for myself. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, 32, 33, 34 
went, right, I'm going to work for myself. And then part of that was I got a job with the Royal Shakespeare Company for six months. They wanted an interim communications director. And one of the things I've been doing at Heathrow was dealing with stakeholder relations and really consulting properly with communities around the airport. So having done that for a couple of years, I then set up Lyric Communications to consult to try and set up a new model really of how do we consult and to do this with authenticity one of those words which it is one of those words every time I see it I cringe but also appreciate it's such a hard thing because I feel like it's so thrown around now yeah but if you're not doing it authentically then you know I know, but it is, but it's that. And it's really interesting because I've thought a lot about its communications, but it's as well, it's holding, what's the phrase? Holding power to truth, truth to power. So what you can do as a consultant, which you can, is very hard to do when they're paying your salary, is I can have a full and frank conversation with a boss and go, you do realise that if you do this, not only are you not treating people very well, but it's going to come and hit you back in the face. And I can have those really tricky conversations about how this looks from the outside. And of course, because I don't do it just in in one place, I do it with a whole range across a whole range of industries and organisations. I've got stories and experiences from all over, which is really useful when you're talking to people to go, well, imagine this or look at it from this point of view. And it's great. So it is also like being a court jester. You're bringing the really unpalatable, often with humour and a smile. So that's, I'm not sure I'm really answering your question, but it's almost that thing about moving from just furthering an organization's objectives to trying to go to the spirit of the thing mm-hmm. as well. So it's not just, right, you want to, somebody says, oh, we want to be in all the newspapers. I'll go, well, that's not, that's not my job. That's not what I do. But I can certainly quiz you on why do you want to be in all the newspapers? And perhaps there's another way that we can look at you achieving what you want to achieve. What are you trying to communicate? Why the newspapers? And why I can be very annoying. I know it's hard to believe. (laughs) And I I definitely see you as the kind of person that doing your own thing is, it was a natural progression because I can't imagine you sticking with a, I don't know, a corporate lifestyle or an organization, or it definitely feels like you're an own your own business or run your own consultancy Mm. type. Thank you. But, and that's what a lot of my friends from then said. They went, oh my God, it was so obvious. And I genuinely go, really? Because I loved pretending I was Ali McBeal with my heels and my pencil skirts and sometimes, <laughs> you know, usually very short hair and coffee, always the coffee. That's the one thing I miss about going into an office. And I have to say now it would always be in a, re- a reusable cup. But back in the day in New York, having my coffee in my hand and made me feel like I'm taking over America <laughs> or something. <laughs> I tell you, any corporates that are out there, if you want theatre types to come in and pretend for a day, we're up for it just for expenses. <laughs> maybe a bit more, maybe a donation to Skin in the Game, crowdfunder, LinkedIn bio. So you mentioned Ally McBeal mm. and Ally McBeal famously did have these weird illusions, one of which was always a baby. So I'm going to nice. use that as my little segue. How you like that? Because I know you have a 10 year old. So where does your son come into all of this? Where does your personal life go? I thought you were going to say, where did he come from? <laughs> How do you make well. babies? Um. <laughs> I've always wanted to ask this, Jill. <laughs> so I did, I, I had Lyric for two years and then I decided that I wanted to write, having done the Royal Shakespeare Company for six months and I got really inspired there and then went, right, I'm going to have to save a lot of money if I want to write, leave London, which was a bit weird. But everybody was having babies and 
husbands and wives and things. It was really, because I was divorced by this point, and uh, nobody was coming out to play. Yeah. And when you work at an airport, you don't all go and get pissed after work, funnily enough. Yeah, I could see that. Or I, pissed not as in the annoyed American way, but as in the <laughs> drunk British way. Yes. Because we have a global audience. Exactly. And uh, yeah, and it was, it, life was getting a bit lonely, actually. And, and interestingly, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to settle down and have a family. I thought I'm going to leave London, go and write. So I came to Bath. I thought about the Highlands and uh, France and all sorts of strange things where people just looked at me as I spouted these ideas and went, uh-huh, yeah, you'll be, because I'd lived in, so- I was living in Soho. Oh yeah, you'll do really well in the Lake District. <laughs> I do feel though sometimes when you make a change, it, you want it to be as completely polar opposite as possible. I'm going to make a change. It's going to be huge. And I think about that all the time. What's my next step? And I imagine the lakes, the whatever. And I, then I think, yeah, but I do sometimes think I would miss the bright lights, big city. Yeah. So Bath is nice in between. Well, Bath was really safe because it's a 90 minute train journey. And actually 90 minutes on a train journey is perfect because an hour is a bit like a commute that you might do from the edges of London into London. Mm-hmm. Whereas 90 minutes gets you into Paddington this is brought to you by GWR 90 minutes gets you into Paddington and then you've got that and it's a beautiful place and it's also tiny nobody can get away with anything Uh, it's not really a city it is a city but it's minute for anybody who's my age and British it's like Trumpton which was this sort of 70s kids show little ideal idealized town but it's no, it's great. And it's and and so then I met uh, my son's dad and then we had him. And that's a oh God, grown upness. A lot of me is not grown up yet. And I'm absolutely fine with that. I've got there's multiple Jills and most of them like playing. I was going to say, I feel like I always use the excuse that I don't have kids as to why I never was really forced to grow up, obviously. I am a grown-up. I have to pay bills. I think having kids or a child does make a moment, does mark a growing up moment. It's a really weird one. And it's one that I'm, and I really like that we're talking about it because I didn't know that I would have any kids. So there was, uh, there was a lot there. There was quite a lot of grieving that went a lot, went on before I had him. And it's really strange because I became a single parent when he was, he'd only just had his second birthday. So there was that mm-hmm. real sense of, oh my God, I right royally effed this up. And, uh, and a lot of uh, sense of shame and guilt that I'd really let him down. However, there's a really interesting thing that I've discovered, and I don't know whether it would have happened anyway or whatever, but because I'm a parent, I've reclaimed so much of my childishness. Ah, interesting. Which is great. And it might be because I have to be both his parents. He he sees his dad, you know, once a week. And also there's no um, siblings his age. He's got half sisters, but they're adult. But because of him then entertaining and playing and even things like I got so bored with Bob the Builder. No offense, Bob the Builder, but there's a limit. And I was doing the Channel 4 screenwriting thing and having to learn about so I'd written a few plays but I hadn't done screenwriting and really having to learn about structure and beats because the architecture of a story is really important but I hadn't done any formal training and so I would use we'd watch things like Mr Ben or Peppa Pig when he was just two or three and I would use them to chart out the hero's journey and it's how I remembered the hero's journey you can find that blog on jillkirk.com but it works so you can go there's either a baddie 
or a problem. Mm-hmm. So with Peppa Pig, it's, it's always a problem, really. And it will be things like the spider. Mummy Pig is frightened of the spider. And you can still, mm-hmm. again, in every episode, plot the hero's journey going round. And then he and I started making little films. And then when he went to school, I started up a, a mythology club. So an after school, I've got a, a big leather books and I would adapt myths from all over the world and then into 20 minute blocks. And then on a Friday afternoon to very tired infant school kids from the age of six to eight, seven, eight. And then they draw things and things. But it was fascinating because the point of um, working with these individual children on their creative responses and the sort of the morals and everything in these stories from all over the world. And they're seeing, oh, that's like such and such, or that's in a film that I already know, or and that sense of the timelessness of stories and how the kids just naturally understood them and how it would unlock things. For, oh, my God, it was brilliant. And that would never have happened if I'd been a secure, salaried job, mum of however many in the traditional family that I had imagined. You know, if I had designed my life, none of that would have happened if I got what I wanted. None of that would have come about. And it's amazing because one of the one of the golden rules, we had these golden rules, which is art is never perfect, is the main one that the kids loved. Because what was happening even so young, oh no, I've coloured over the lines. Oh no, this isn't perfect. And they would weep and get very upset. And to see that in children so young was quite upsetting. So we came up with this golden rule, art is never perfect. And I'm still hearing, and I haven't done it since lockdown happened, but I'm hearing of younger siblings of kids who went to, it's called Story Circle. You can find it online as well. Doing their own pictures and things, it goes wrong. And then they go, oh, art is never perfect. I think that's the kind of thing that I can stand to be reminded of all the time. I talked to someone last week who is a potter and what she, or a ceramist, she lives pots. And what she, the, the type of jars, moon jars that she loves to make, one of the important things is that they're not perfect. Brilliant. And it's such a good reminder. Things can be so beautiful without our preconceived notion of what perfection is. And that's the thing. So you get that in Islamic art. You always make a flaw because the only thing that's allowed to be perfect is Allah. Yeah. So it's really important that it isn't perfect. But also, so there's this whole thing about, I used to say, it's where the imps get in. They're, they're trying to tell you something. So listen to them. Mm-hmm. But if you look at Coca-Cola and post-it notes and penicillin and also these things came about by accident. It, it's because these people didn't go, oh, my gosh, I got it wrong and threw it in the bin. They listened to the pixies. Happy accidents. Happy accidents. So, again, on a personal level, you were talking about splitting up with your son's father. And so what happened there? Oh, I'm really going to get into it. It's really interesting because you have a story, don't you, at the time, and mm-hmm. then you have a story afterwards. And now we're eight years since, nearly since the separation. I think Headspace got very crowded. It was a family of five, but also my husband's uh, first wife had died. And so, you know, quite a complicated space. And he had two young daughters. And I think one, one of the things that's very interesting, I have been the stepmother. And yeah. so have quite strong feelings about fairy tales. Um, <laughs> and I think that where bereavement happens in a family, particularly in a family and it's young, that stirs up all sorts of complicated things. I'm a great fan of what's his name? He's, he, he, there's a book called They Fuck You Up, mm-hmm. Oliver James. Mm-hmm. And Oliver James talks about how we are, even identical twins are parented differently. 
I think I walked into a, a dynamic that was already on many levels had a lot of complicated history in it mm-hmm. and I thought it was my fault and what I'm what the space I'm in now is to say it was absolutely it was the most horrendous experience of my life because there was extreme psychological domestic abuse to go to talk about we've talked about uh, stuff that happens to all of us and the squirming stuff I was incredibly lucky to come across something called the Freedom Programme, which runs across the country and is online and your GPs can refer you to it and all the rest of it. But it put me through a sort of recovery programme where I realised again and again, oh my gosh, I thought that was just happening in my situation and so on. And it wasn't, it sounds like it's about finding a community of women who are experiencing the same thing. And it's partly that, but it was actually about understanding. One of the things about psychological abuse is in some languages, it's called uh, soul murder. And if anybody has watched either of the films, Gaslighting, you'll know the phrase, but it comes from the film where... Uh, a man is mucking about with his wife's mind by going to the flat upstairs or downstairs and playing with the gas so the lights are going on and off and he's moving her objects and going I didn't put that there oh you're going mad again oh we're all very worried about you and this was some of the stuff quite a bit of the stuff that I went through and started to really think gosh I'm in a I'm in a film this is so absolutely bonkers it must be my perception because no one would do this and certainly not in this situation and and so you get there's a there's a shaming that goes on which is really common but the interesting thing is you can tell I'm a bit talkative and it got to the point where I barely spoke for a month before I left and that's one of the reasons I talk about it and I'm quite happy to share it here now you can see I'm doing it with caution and and care but if somebody with the story that you've heard so far about running for parliament and going to Oxford from a comp and a Glasgow background and blah, 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 can end up basically mute and, and that frightened and thinking, this must be me. It can happen to anyone. And I'm lucky enough to have all the tools of a good education and confidence and, and plenty of evidence to go. No, I'm not. Look at all the things I've done. I'm, I'm a well-equipped, well-adjusted. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Am I? But not everybody has that who ends up in that situation. And so I think speaking out about it and also if realising that it could be going on in that family over there or that woman over there or whatever. And of course, it's not only women who experience this, but it is largely women who experience this. And there's something, and I don't know what it is, it's going back to what we were saying before about having the right words or things being too disgusting to talk about, but there's so many things that are more women-specific that are greeted with shame or greeted with embarrassment. And yeah, I do think being able to talk about it, we are getting better as a society. I don't know if that's an accurate statement, but at least as women, I think we are starting to speak at least to each other a lot more. I think so, yeah. But the the shame behind it, I can imagine it is easy to get to the point that you've just convinced yourself or been convinced Mm. that it is your fault, that this is only happening to you. So that project especially sounds really good. But anything that women can hear from other women, they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's one of those things we go, 
it's some because boiling a frog basically i think is the is the best metaphor it's that whole thing and it's like bullying in schools you can go oh we only just nicked your pencil case come on yes but there was the sock and the, there was the shoe and there was the everyone turning their back when i walked into room and there was and there was and domestic psychological abuse is a slow and deliberate dismantling of somebody's identity with utter malice. And it is one of the most destructive things you can do to another human being. We need to be more aware of A, its existence, B, spotting the signs in our friends, friends who suddenly keep cancelling. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're not a git. Maybe they haven't got something better to do. Maybe this. Maybe they are making excuses, but, you know, why? Yeah, it's that kind of thing. And quite often, unfortunately, the, the, the perpetrators are very charming and not necessarily the, the smooth. Oh, I'm so they can be seem quite meek and gentle and lovely chaps and no one would believe it. They may not maliciously intend to set out to start off going, this is what I'm going to do this year. My project right. is going to be to destroy my other half. But it can just happen because that's what they need to do to survive because of whatever else is going on in their life. Yeah, because they're coming from somewhere as well. It reminds me of approaching a script as an actor, and I love a villainous quote-unquote character. But you never look at the character as villainous because nobody, or very, you have to be a real psychopath to think, I am a villain, I am evil. (laughs) So if you want to play that character with any kind of authenticity, you have to approach it. Why would they be doing this? Why? So I am very intrigued with why somebody does the things they do and things that from the outside are perceived as villainous or evil or unkind. But yeah, as the person doing it, you'd never be the person who thinks I'm a bad person. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked before in other places about comedy heroes and Thingamy and Webb, Mitchell and Webb have got a brilliant sketch, which I recommend, which is where you've got two guys in Nazi uniforms. Then one of them goes, hang on. Look at our, look at, we're all in black. We've got skull and crossbones. We've got jaggedy thunder. Are we the baddies? <laughs> I think we're the baddies. And it happens as well in Box Trolls, which is a gorgeous stop motion animation, absolute piece of genius. And you've got the two kind of minion type characters of the main baddie. I love that film. It's genius. And they're talking philosophy all the way through. And they're going, we're just do we're just following orders. We're just and then going, they're talking about the nature of evil and good. And then mm-hmm. they get to the point where they go, I think we might be the baddies. And it's just beautiful because that's how this works. So this is skipping a bit of your life, but hearing you say that shows what your sense of humor is a bit like, what your playwriting is a bit like. So I do want to talk about skin in the game because I'm lucky enough to be producing it oh. with you as the playwright. But I think the thing that's really one of the things that really interests me about this play, I'm really big on having female characters that are over the age of 35, just like the podcast, but they have to be fallible and they have to be imperfect because like we said, art isn't perfect. We're not perfect. Mm. So yeah, skin in the game. What I think I really love about it is nobody's good. Nobody's really a goodie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to let you say a little something about it because it's your play. I'm just the produ- I'm just the one who's trying to get it on the stage. <laughs> oh, I don't think that's all you're doing. Oh God, I am absolutely. And the, and the funny thing is, people say, "So, how did you find your producer?" And you know, uh, Twitter. Yeah, we met through Twitter, yeah. which is such the case with so many people I chat with for the podcast, for the industry, just everything. It's such it's a good just connection. Brilliant. 
But it is about how you engage. And you're one of those people who asks questions. And that it's that you're doing stuff and you ask questions. And, and that's how I use Facebook quite a lot is asking questions and getting conversations going. So skin in the game. Uh, the thing about the fallibility and all the rest of it is that, and the, and the characters here, I almost feel, and this is the third time in this, that I'm going to feel like a complete poser, is... It, it almost feels like I didn't write these characters. It genuinely did all come to me through a walk in the mountains when I, you know, had told a theatre company that I was working with to stop looking for stories and then went, I really should follow my own advice. I'm going to go on this holiday and I'm not going to write. I'm not going to, it's a holiday, go and live. And then it, it kept bubbling up and I had to keep recording it. So these words and this stuff would just blah, 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 blah. And one of our very human characters, Elizabeth, is, this is the thing when you're a writer, actually, of course, everything you write, every character you write is you. Yes, in it's some got, sense. Right? In some, <laughs> because they can be a reflection of people that you've met, you've come across, but they are being created through the filter of you. I have to interrupt and say there is a character in this play called Derek the Bee God. You're saying they're all you. I'm very intrigued. The orchestra of Jill. It's almost like a crystal when you do that in science when you're about 10. And the light comes through the crystal and it refracts. Yes. And then you get all the different colours. And I, I think it just depends on what shape crystal you are, what comes out. I think that with all writers, it's uh, that's what's going on. And with all directors as well, with all of us, what you express is always coming through you. But I, I've part of me really struggled with. So Elizabeth is the, the definitely over 35 year old woman. And is also obviously the one that's most like me on the surface. And I struggled with her in retrospect, if you like, not in the making or the writing of her or anything, but then looking at her afterwards and going, how do I feel about her? And it's really interesting how other people then respond to her because part of me went and this is definitely because she's most like me I expected people to say she's weak she's weakly written and and basically pick her apart but that's me looking at my own flaws yeah and I think like we said well a few different things we said but I think that's what makes her a good character that she does have flaws that she isn't that you don't know how to look at her hopefully some of you out there might even see um watching this play because i do think that's what makes her interesting it's what makes all the characters interesting because everybody again thinks that they're doing the right thing or they're yeah. good enough people or self-serving is not a bad thing or whatever that is but ultimately you go who's the good guy but that's the really interesting thing there's there's certain things that go on in your development as any kind of uh, poser alert artist not just as a writer where you develop your craft over that decades quite often and then there's a point of confidence about actually you know th this is not about it isn't actually weak writing it's about ambiguity and it's that interesting that was a conversation I've had with myself about Elizabeth um because she's not uh the other characters are more uh designed if you like they can be played bigger Whereas she's the one that definitely has her roots. See what I did there. People who are listening, you'll have to come and see the play to see what I just did there. But she has her roots much more than anybody else, I think, in a reality that is relatable to the rest of us. Yes. And she is well-intentioned, but she's full of flaws. And bless her. One of my favourite lines is the character Mike says, you're being worthy again, Lizzie. <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) And I do think that's it, is that like all of us, she thinks she's doing something very correct or she's trying to be good. And she does come off as very worthy. (laughs) No, God. There's this thing that it it took me a while, God, about 20 years of watching The Simpsons before I went, oh, my God, I'm Lisa Simpson. I'm so Lisa Simpson. (laughs) Except for I play the violin instead of the sax. (laughs) I'm even nerdier. (laughs) That's brilliant. I didn't know that. I do. I play the French horn. That's super nerdy, too. We are nerds. We're good (laughs) girls. Oh, we used to be. Okay, that's a good question for you. Despite the goth Marxist, I'll bring it full circle. But when do you think you stopped being a good girl? That's a really good question. Oh, I think I just redefined good. Mm. So I think there is a moment where I realized with some relief that it didn't matter that I wasn't famous or earning six figures or whatever else, a size four, or that's never really mattered to me, but that I was living my values. Mm -hmm. And that was really nice to, I wasn't chasing a carrot that was dangling in front of me. I've been incredibly lucky to be able to make that choice. That's the thing, to be able to say, you know, to be able to set up my own company. And it's been really incredibly frightening at times because there have been years when I've worked incredibly hard, build almost nothing, gone for, there was one year recently where I went for a hundred jobs and didn't get one. God, really frightening. Thank you to Gordon Brown and the tax credit system. Seriously, just uh, astonishing. I'm t- ch- Choice is what privilege is, I think these days it's not about wealth to be able to be able to work in the arts still just about I'm really lucky that I now have clients who give me work and we can sit here and be doing this and have the time to do it you're being worthy again Jill oh god damn yeah (laughs) I asked you when you stopped being a good girl and you were like I'm so privileged let me just do this I did didn't I I'm just gonna go and get my cigarettes and my wine and then we can carry on. You're um, Sandy that's... from Greece at the last scene, Jack. Oh, no. <laughs> Sandy from Greece was so awful. Oh, my God. That's an archetype I will just never get away from. But that is re- that, no, such a good point because there is a lot of me who wants to still be a really naughty girl. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it depends on what you call naughty as well. I think the fact that you're a bit of a rebel, speaking your mind, etc. that's probably a good grown-up way to be. It's well, here's a really good example. I do theater reviews, and, and this week I went to see a play. They haven't published the review yet, but I went to see a play that made me so angry because it had big names in it, and it's touring, and it's so awful that people were it's a thriller, people were laughing at the tense moments. They were laughing and pointing. And I thought, gosh, there's all these people who have worked really hard on this, and all these theaters that have booked it because theaters need bums on seats. Mm-hmm. how do I play this and actually I just had to say I did right do not go and see this show and I yeah and I apologize to everybody who's booked this because they need the ticket income however putting on stuff like this undermines the institution of theatre itself because when people fork out 30 40 quid and it's a letdown they are less likely to go again so this sort of stuff shouldn't have got through the door. And that was a really, and people have said to me, who I've shown the review to, are you sure you know, that's quite a brave thing to write? But actually there's a degree of whistleblowing, I think, that has to go on in whatever, not just the arts, 
where we go, we, because we love the greater thing, sometimes you have to go, this is wrong. I know firsthand there's a lot of, not even just the stuff that we're working on, but there is a lot of really great work out there, really great work, and it's not getting through. And that's not right. That's not healthy. And I understand organisations, not just in theatre, but you're playing it safe. But you've got to you've got to stretch out because there's better qualified, better able, better entertaining things out there that you're not seeing. Yeah. And I'll be worthy again for a moment and just say that statistically, most of that's written by women. It's true. (sighs) Yeah. Cue moment. So I've asked you for a quote. Oh. I'm going to jump to that part. Yeah. Yeah. What's your quote? I really thought about this because I told you what the quote I, I come back to a lot is. And actually, it's the, I, yeah, I mused over it and thought, no, there's nothing better than this. So it is. And this could be my gravestone as well, actually, as well as the incontinence. <laughs> um, uh, don't die curious. That is not a quote that I've heard quoted that way before. But it certainly would be my motto for life, I think. It's a so nice one. We share it? that. <laughs> but this is the thing. And I've heard you say it on here before. You, ca- you can't sit in a cage and watch it go on out there. You, ju- you know, you just can't. And uh, you have to wear it lightly. As Who's that American comedian? There's a guy. He was always smoking. He died very young. And he said, life is just a ride. But yeah, and it is. It's that thing of Bill Hicks. It's Bill okay. Hicks. Okay. Life is just a ride. And actually, yeah, if you don't take yourself too seriously, pick yourself up, dust yourself off. Yes. Despite the fact that the that Skin in the Game is a dark, very dark, but very hilarious comedy. I'm taking it quite seriously, but I'm also going to remember to, uh, yeah, to remember it's a ride because I'm so lucky to be on this ride with you. Oh, no, it's brilliant. I'm so excited. And thank you very much for coming and chatting about a lot of other things besides just skin in the game and your journey so far. God, journey. It's a lot like authenticity. <laughs> your Adventure? lack of curiosity or your, not lack, <laughs> your, your absolute <laughs> curiosity. <laughs> yes, your adventure. I'm going to call it your adventure. Thank you for coming to share your adventure so far. I'm looking forward to the next various chapters. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. If my conversation with Jill whet your appetite for live theater, you can find the ticket link for Skin in the Game in the show notes for this episode or through ATG Tickets. We're also halfway through a crowdfunder to ensure our casts and creatives can be paid more fairly than fringe theater ticket sales allow. So if you'd like to support live theater or just want to let me know that you're enjoying the second chapter, I'd love whatever you can pledge. The link for that is also in the show notes or go to crowdfunder.co.uk where you can search Skin in the Game. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.